Hello, and welcome to the Translation Company Talk, a weekly podcast show focusing on translation services and the language industry. The Translation Company Talk covers topics of interest for professionals engaged in the business of translation, localization, transcription, interpreting, and language technology. The Translation Company Talk is sponsored by Hybrid Links. Your host is Sultan Ghaznawi with today's episode. Hello and welcome to Translation Company Talk, your weekly podcast show. Today I'm going to be speaking with Talia Baruk from Global Saki about perception of localization. Talia is a global growth executive working cross-functionally to make products make sense in the multicultural marketplace. She has 20 plus years of experience leading international expansion and product and growth marketing at Google, LinkedIn, and SurveyMonkey and is a localization and internationalization expert. Talia is now an independent consultant and user, helping companies accelerate global growth ground up, integrating regional and cultural factors and holistic product strategy and experience performance to win adoption in local markets on a global scale. Talia is also a professor of global branding, international digital marketing strategy, and international product at CEDIM or CEDIM Design School in Mexico, which is an executive MBA program, at HALT International Business School, which is also an executive MBA program, and at San Francisco State University College of Business. She mentors Google's portfolio startups and applied machine learning technologies in emerging markets. Talia is the co-founder of Global Sake, creating a collective global community of cross-functional leads driving new market expansion and launching the monthly parliament corporate education events. Welcome to the translation company Talk Talia. Hi Sultan, thank you for having me. Thank you. Tell us about yourself and what you've been up to lately. Um, so big question. I mean, uh, the world is changing on us rapidly. So we keep needing to wake up in the morning into a new reality and, and adapt and adapt quickly. Um, I've been really busy on Global Sake. Uh, we're just now launching the 2022 program. Uh, so that has been really, um, you know, after last year's program, this is sort of a natural uh, continuation. Uh, but um, a lot of kind of uh, deep focus on um, in-person, uh, more intimate um, and focused uh, meetups. So a lot of a lot of that, those experiences are gonna, you'll be able to see them this year. Yes, yeah. I attended Global Saki's events last year and I even presented in one of them. I think it's a very good forum uh, to, to speak with both sides of the fence, the buyer side and the supplier side. And it's just a, a treasure trove of information for people who want to learn something about localization, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, and uh, most importantly, uh, cross-functional alignment on international efforts. So, so taking localization to a higher strategic um, and cross-functional uh, level uh, to discuss more about go-to-market strategy and uh, product geofit and uh, user research for international segments and any other aspects of the business. So, uh, Talia, um, I always start a conversation by asking about the story. So tell me about your story uh, with regards to localization. How did you start and was it an accident? Huh. Um, I was born into a multicultural family, uh, very much uh, where East meets West. Uh, my father is from Uzbekistan, Bukhar. My mother is from England. Um, her, you know, her fam- the, the, those two worlds are, are, couldn't be more different. Like my mom, you know, atheist family, single child. My, my dad, you know, big, big, big family, very different culture. Um, and then in my grandparents' home in, in the village in England, um, they were actually from uh, Bruno in Czechoslovakia at the time and uh, Vienna in Austria. Uh, they fled, you know, uh, Second World War and um, 
and actually created sort of a Noah's Ark. It was actually called the Ark, a wooden, an amazing home where refugees from from people who were displaced after Second World War um, came and stayed with them. And it was a sort of a, a place, a safe haven for multilingual. I, you know, as a kid, I would sit there and hear people talking in different accents and different languages and, um, you know, kind of the salons of the Bohemians of the 30s, you know, um, were there like philosopher, Karl Popper, the philosopher and musicians and poets. And so it was, um, it was fascinating for me to be exposed to all this multiculturalism. And I think from a young age, I, I was very much drawn, uh, attracted to understanding people throughout their, you know, geolocations and, and um, cultural expectations. So, um, so yeah, from a very, you know, from the beginning, basically, that's what I studied. I studied applied linguistics and literature, French and English, and then took it to localization management, worked on the vendor side for 10 years, and then on the client side. I did transadaptation for uh, literary uh, content, so uh, transadapted um, of Broadway shows and poetry and such, and then took it to creative copy with marketing material but then um and then but then you know for the latter 10 years uh, pivoted to product and growth and headed uh international product and growth at uh, linkedin and then at SurveyMonkey. so from content adaptation to international segments um adapting the product experience and performance to resonate and to be relevant for international segments and, and that's that's kind of been the in a nutshell the journey oh, that, that that's a very interesting story and thanks for sharing the background um let's dive into our core topic of conversation um today uh, talia we will be covering the perception of localization by inside and outside stakeholders and you've been through many enterprises you've seen how localization is performed Give me a brief overview of how is localization perceived today? Yeah, I think we've, we've gone a certain way from localization. Um, but, you know, I, I joined Elton um, kind of pretty much when it was at the beginning of its inception, I think, you know, around 25 years ago, 23 years ago. And it's still the same in the sense that still many companies, um, mostly U.S.-based companies, still see localization as a, as, a, as a language support production effort. It's reflected in how it's positioned within the org structure in companies um, and also kind of, you know, the, the impact of the business, right? So the perceived impact of the business bottom line. The shift that I'm, um, you know, that I'm trying to evangelize for, and, and we've seen some steps forward in that direction, um, is um, is really around understanding that localization, yes, language support is critical, obviously, but it's not enough for um, for continuous. Um, in-country adoption, right? So once you've, you know, it's enough to kind of land in a new country, in a new market uh, with um, making it discoverable and accessible uh, with a native language, but not to adopt the native, the, the new market, right? So for adoption to maximize that uh, new market penetration, you really need to, to do a lot of, you know, recreation, uh, sometimes readjusting the value-added proposition, understanding what problem you're solving for, who it is you're solving it for in the new market, how do you define and measure success? All these factors are different in some markets. Um, integrating the regional and the cultural factors uh, into your product strategy, into how your product is discovered, how it's onboarded, how it's engaged, you know, conversion to to paid and then retention. Right? Course, so all, of, all this unique user journey um, on some core funnels does need to be rethought 
to be uh, to resonate and to be relevant for your specific addressable segments in each in each priority market. That is actually a very nice segue to my next question. What are the fundamental principles of developing a localization program inside an enterprise? Like we see, you know, some of the Silicon Valley giants are are forming very structured departments. What are the basics? Yeah, I mean, the, the way I see localization is, is to a little bit to change the mindset from, for example, you know, source English into target non-English and kind of seeing it as a uh, as a linear process, uh, which by default results in in international product launches um, coming much later after the English product launches, right? And so by the time, you know, usually we see like, a, you know, two or three versions uh, behind for the international uh, product experiences, um, in addition to kind of have not, you know, having some gaps in the fundamental backend uh, and mid-tier infrastructure architecture. So while the... Um, UI, let's say, could be translated, the marketing material can be translated, but maybe search doesn't work um, or, you know, a site speed, um, uh, instant deploys, uh, instant deploys and, and instant page loads, uh, latency uh, in the in the new markets, right? Um, you know, maybe the relevancy algorithm doesn't work or any of the um, autofills, right, um, don't work in the in the native language, right? So all kinds of other inhabitants to, to the product performance, right? And so changing the mindset from um, kind of localization or, you know, if it's seen more as in a, in a narrower spectrum of language support uh, and as a tail end production uh, effort, changing that mindset to including kind of circular cycles versus linear source English into non-English targets, right? So in a circular localization process, we would have English is just one of the languages we support. Right. Some in some cases we might want, let's say if Japan is a priority market, we might want to have a source in Japanese that is created specifically for Japan, local content creation. And then maybe we want to transadapt that to France. Right. So you'd have Japanese into French. So so kind of seeing um, having a much more holistic um, strategy around the content, around the process, around the the launch cycles of the product updates um, that is not based on source English into target non-English or, or, or you know, um, domestic U.S. into international non-U.S. markets, but rather as a, in, rather looking at it from a very different angle, right? From an angle that, that says, okay, we are a company that provides this solution to this problem, right? These are the markets that we most care about because that's where we can have most impact. That's where we have uh, traction. So, and, and, and kind of adapting the entire product, marketing, business strategy to holistically run with that in circular uh, mode, right? And that's a very, very different mindset of how the organization operates and, how, and, and especially on how to align cross-functionally all the international efforts. So I kind of see it not as U.S. versus international, but rather as global. Right, but really a global ready, uh, a global ready strategy. So, given the fact that it's mostly American organizations uh, that's that's uh, propelling this effort, although they're trying to get into a non-English market, is localization really a U.S.-driven effort? No, I would say absolutely not. I mean, it's yes, you have. I mean, it depends on the vertical, I guess, but. Um, there are a lot of amazing examples, you know, Spotify and many other companies that originate outside of the U.S. Um, actually, it's interesting that um, oftentimes, you know, companies originating from Australia, um, when in their international expansion story, they don't even 
attempt, oftentimes they don't even attempt to enter U.S. because that's too much of a competition. Um, so they actually go for to prioritize uh, new markets that U.S. companies struggle to adopt, like the um, you know uh, emerging markets or a lot of the Asia and Southeast Asia markets um, that U.S. companies are you know more global standard versus global ready. Um, oriented and therefore not um, are more rigid in their backend infrastructure. Uh, so they're not um, enabled to instantly deploy the relevant geofit user experience, right? Because they, they are global standard and not global ready adaptive. Um, and so sometimes, often not sometimes, I would say almost all the time, the smaller local market competitors uh, actually win those new markets in a more efficient way than U.S. corporate, um, you know, multinational corporates, simply because they are set up in a more global ready versus global standard backend. And they are more agile, they are more adaptive, and they, you know, they take the uh, effort and the, the investment to actually understand, you know, do the user research and the market research and understand the remaining opportunity in the new market, the addressable segment, what do their uh, end customers most care about, right? Understand all those factors and most importantly, quickly adapt to meet those needs, right? Whereas uh, oftentimes the multinational corporates uh, based from the, you know, from the US and going outbound are not as agile and not as adaptive in their uh, structure to respond fast enough, right? Talia, uh, let, let's go back to the, the core of uh, localization in an enterprise. How does the localization unit justifies its existence and its work to other teams? From my experience, most people know about localization when they run into an issue that requires translation or interacting with a foreign audience. Mm-hmm. Right. It, it really depends. So um, what I've seen in a lot of most companies, uh, especially U.S.-based companies, they have a localization team. Sometimes it's, oftentimes it's internal, and they sit somewhere either in engineering or in product org. Um, they're not necessarily on the t- in the table uh, discussing strategic um, global growth, uh, uh, you know, initiatives or in those meetings, right? So their visibility to the corporate core objectives on the top level, right, and then it, it is limited. And at the same time, you know, they're not necessarily um, set up in a way that uh, that invites them or that makes them, um, you know, effective influencers across the organization in terms of aligning OKRs. So, for example, when I um, led international product at ServerMonkey, I, I had to align all of my international OKRs, uh, the, the core, my core objectives uh, quarterly, with each of the stakeholders uh, in each across in each in each functional team across the company, uh, because you know I could not execute on all of you know my PRD basically um, has uh, initiatives that relate to any to all other teams, right? To legal, to business, for strategic partnerships in the new markets, to marketing, to SEO, right? Every every possible team I needed to have, I had an international OKR for them, right? And they needed to execute on it because it was their resources. So even just that piece, like enabling um, an influence, no, an influence. Um, to actually align OKRs across the org, that is something that a company needs to think about, right? And and avail, make available. Um, oftentimes, it's a big issue in companies. So, so do you see that uh, in industry there is an effort to create uniformity around that that type of a process for localization, or or is this something that every organization comes up and and does it their own way? Um, I think. The, the standard has been, I think now companies are starting to understand and, and adapt, but the standard up to now has been to see localization as a tail-end production team, 
embedded right. some, somewhere, right, in within a team, within another, within a specific org. Um, but again, with with very uh, limited visibility for in, for effective influence. I'm hoping I am seeing some examples of, of improvement in that area. My when I work, you know, I'm right now I'm an independent consultant as well as uh, running Global Sake, and uh, in both cases, you know, I work very closely with uh, clients from startups to scale ups to multinational corporations to help them be more efficient with their new markets growth and adoption, right? And a lot of that work happens on the org structure. It happens, of course, on um, uh, on the on the products, you know, again, back-end, mid-tier, and front-end um, uh, build-ups and strategy, strategic mindset. Um, and so I'm seeing some, some I'm definitely seeing uh, good progress in that area. But again, this education needs to kind of uh, drill down to more uh, more companies. Um, there is a lot of, you know, US-based companies do struggle to uh, adopt. They are able to enter many different international markets, but they do struggle to adopt specific markets where you do need to have that additional layer of effort, like Japan and Germany um, and Mexico, where, you know, markets that require some regional cultural factors to be weaved into the strategy. And, and quite frankly, to actually optimize those core funnels, even just a funnel like, um, you know, where you have involuntary churn in checkout through com- to completed orders, right? So, you, you you know, companies invest a lot of money um, in, you know, marketing efforts and boots on ground and strategic partners in, in a new market, let's say, like Germany. Uh, but they have, a th- I often see um, roughly, you know, um, a 30% churn, and this is an involuntary churn, of their of people in uh, so their customers their users in Germany um, looking at pricing page from there moving on to checkout phase one uh, step one step two and so on about thirty percent gap in people dropping off um, in their checkout flow in Germany um, within from starting checkout until uh, completed orders um, you see about a thirty percent drop uh, between their Germany performance and their U.S. performance right. Um, and that, that is very typical, actually. We see that often with Germany. And this is because um, in Germany, customers, you know, the expected behavior is quite different in checkout. And companies, uh, US-based companies, you know, they simply translate in the interface, but they don't really change, um, you know, to multi-step checkout and to, um, you know, explicit user data consent checkboxes. Uh, it's better now with G- GDPR. I ran a lot of um, A-B tests, like two years before GDPR, um, which showed quite drastically like how you know German users they just want to know what you're gonna how you're gonna collect use and share their data as, as soon as they know that they feel more relaxed to 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 sign up and to uh, engage with your product and, and buy it but um but it's you know now it's better with the GDPR but still there are a lot of you know the the trust seal is not there or you know the 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 invoice uh receipt you know all those multi-steps are not quite there so even, you know, this is just one example from one specific funnel flow um, and how just by optimizing that for the priority market like Germany, um, you can, you know, you, you can win, you know, your companies leaving a lot of money on the table that otherwise um, would, would, would have been part of their bottom line. This podcast is made possible with sponsorship from Hybrid Links, a human-in-the-loop provider of translation and data collection services for healthcare, education, legal, and government sectors. Visit hybridlinks.com to learn more. Tony, that's that's an interesting point, actually, that you just made. So localization has been primarily associated with translation, um, rightfully or 
maybe it's not the case. But now we see that localization is a lot about a lot more than that. Uh, you just mentioned digital product localization, uh, such as it's you know the checkout process is different, or it, the people respond to it differently. But then there's also physical products. For example, the the steering wheel of cars in the UK versus in the U in the US, right? This on on a different. Do you think that the localization team has a role in in product localization to meet regulations of those type of things? Yes, absolutely. I always believe that localization team should be part of the product org and not part of QA, for example, because QA, again, is a tail end. Um, right. You know, Albert Einstein always said, you know, the best way to solve a problem is to avoid it in the first place. Right. And oftentimes what we see in linear localization workflows is that, um, you know, not the right uh but the right steps were not in, integrated, for example, in the content creation and the in the global content management strategy and, and in, in the product uh, development uh, stages, right, from prototyping to, to launch. Um, and, and so international the international considerations should have been always part of the conversation at the at the front end, right, in, in the product dev design, uh, prototy- prototyping, in the in the initial user research, right, to understand, again, what problem we want to solve for in this feature. Um, and so, and in the content development, right, up front. So when, when you see um, international intervene in the early stages, then by the time QA happens, you know, obviously, that dramatically reduces the QA effort in uh, in regression testing, right, and and therefore reduces the time to market, reduces cost associated, and so on. Uh, but oftentimes we see the opposite, right? I mean, in in localization, uh, or Q, localization QA, LQA is introduced at the tail end, and at that point, people, you know, linguists say, "Oh, wait, I didn't know this was a button. I thought it was an in- part of the, you know." embed text uh, for a button we need a much further string to avoid this truncation in the in the field or we need a, a whole other different word a term that suits in this use case right all of that stuff can be obviously um, taken care of you know avoided uh, if if, it, if we had a different flow but yes um, it's not just about language support uh, it's very much about the, the value proposition um, so oftentimes we need to reposition and massage the value prop for a specific market. Um, We had, you know, we encountered that um, at LinkedIn in many different products. But, you know, when we reached markets like Japan, uh, the whole concept of LinkedIn is, you know, the concept of um, establishing your professional identity is your individual professional identity here in the U.S., right? Um, Right. And the whole... you know, and that feeds really the behavior of the prof of the product, right? Um, when I create a the profile, um, it's all about the individual and your individual accomplishments, and you put in your skills and your badges and your right, all of that. Um, it's kind of self promotion, right? But in a market like Japan, this kind of product experience is not a great fit, you know, and and people feel awkward um, inviting to connect uh, maybe, you know, uh, their boss or a higher level uh, manager or uh, boasting, you know, it's perceived as boasting if they put in a lot of skills and accomplishments on their profile, right? However, if if the value prop is positioned around, you know, your your professional identity is your contribution to your company, right? And, And the success of your company reflects on your success. That's a repositioning of the value prop. And that would influence how the product behaves, right? 
and the messaging around uh, the pro the product to help the users actually take the action designed for each page. So these kind of you know, and that's what we call like product geofit, and and really um, that's really what I call you know the the product geofit and adoption in new markets, right? Is really to understand expected behavior of your priority customers in that market. Uh, what do they care about? What is valuable for them? And how can you position the messaging to resonate with them? Right, so that they can engage in a more meaningful way. Talia, our, our mutual friend Anna Schlegel argues in her book, Truly Global, The Theory and Practice of Bringing Your Company to International Markets. That's the title of her book. She argues that localization is not just about putting some complex processes to, to work to deliver a piece of content versus w- what's viewed by others, uh, but it's, it's about ensuring to meet client demand in a different culture. Do you think enterprises see the value of localization before a funny foreign language mistake is found and their content or someone has launched a lawsuit against them for for something offensive. uh, Is the leadership in today's enterprise aware that localization delivers a lot more than just language? It's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it depends. It depends on the company. Uh, I found that companies that are uh, founded or where the C-levels, they themselves come from a different culture, a different company, a different country, speak another language, um, lived abroad for a while. I feel like they they get it, right? They understand, they have that inter- embedded international orientation. They understand that it's not just about rendering a different language so that the end user will, will understand you, but it's really more about understanding the mindset and the perspective of your end user in the international market and how can you, you the product, right, adapt to that, yes? Uh, how can you understand what they want, what they need, right? Um, so it really it depends on the company. I, I've definitely I've seen a lot, and this is very common. U.S.-based companies they're very successful in in U.S. Uh, maybe in some other uh, core English markets as well. Australia is is a fairly easy market to adopt because you know they're out there and they're small market um, and. They're, you know, it's it's a uh, it's uh, historically it's very it's quite easy to adopt Australia without uh, too many adjustments besides, of course, legal regulatory compliance adjustments. In other markets like Japan, Germany, um, in some cases Brazil and Mexico, uh, Saudi, um, which and UAE, which are uh, oftentimes priority markets for MENA. You know, these are markets that, uh, and certainly in Southeast Southeast. Southeast Asia, the, the the value prop is different, you know, and and sea uh, levels and, and founders who get it and they focus more on what problem we're trying to solve for and who are we optimizing it for and how do we define and measure success. When they focus on those three core questions and build their entire business and org and product strategy uh, around that and then understand, okay, well, what does that look like in a different market, right? They are able to be, to iterate fast enough. They are able to be adaptive, you know, fast enough to respond to uh, new markets uh, needs. And they are therefore able to sustain and grow faster um, in a, and in a much more meaningful way. Uh, you do see a lot of, you know, big companies that are successful in, in the U.S. very, very much struggle in specific uh, local markets that are quite different from the U.S. ecosystem. At Global Saki, you're doing a fantastic job in bringing people from inside and outside the industry to talk about localization. Tell me, how is that helping with the knowledge gap today? Uh, Do you see things moving in the right direction? Yeah, you know, so I... um, 
so 2017, you know, I, I noticed that um, I, I left Urban Monkey at that time and I noticed that no one actually teaches. I have not seen a, prog- a higher ed program that teaches international product. You know, um, right. me is obviously right. teaches localization and others teach international relations, but uh, product management per se. And then how do we think about the international uh, orientation and the global ready and the geofit orientation of product strategy? And so I developed a curriculum uh, program to teach that. And I started and I, and I have been teaching that in um, in different universities. It's part of the executive MBA program um, in, I thought it here at SF State University, at um, uh, SEDIM, uh, SEDIM International Business School, and at, um, sorry, SEDIM in Mexico City is the um, uh, design school, and at Holt International Business School. And then, and then Global Sake, kind of our 2021 year, uh, you know, last year's program, I sort of I took the curriculum that I had uh, developed and basically sliced it into 12, you know, monthly modules, each of them representing a function, a different function in the org, you know, user research, UI, UX design, payments, and so on. And how, and for each of them, you know, what we tackled were the rounded perspectives, views of uh, the international elements of each of those functions, right? And so the, the way I have designed Global Sake as in terms of the content and in terms of its mission is, is to invite, not to preach to the choir. Yes, we, localization folks, they get it, they understand. It's really to bring into the conversation uh, the VP of product and the director of marketing and the head of sales, you know, in different in different scale companies. All of them are responsible for driving global growth for the company, but they don't necessarily come from localization or from an international orientation background. And so it's the program is really designed for them. And it's designed for coming together, all of us the LTNN folks and the non-LTNN folks, right, to align more effectively on international efforts. Um, so that has been um, really successful. Uh, and, tw- and last year, 2021, was a huge pivot year where I can really say, uh, because the whole program was online, we grew exponentially and we had um, many more cohorts coming from Africa and from, you know, from MENA, from, um, you know, strengthening our European cohorts, uh, Asia, uh, from the Latin Americas, and um, many, many of them are not from localization. And so I'm really happy because that's exactly, that was exactly the goal, is to bring those folks into the conversation. Well, last year I I attended the Global Saki events. Uh, I think I saw it towards uh, the second half of the year, and and honestly, I was very impressed with the content and with with the environment you've set up. So you know, it, it, for people who are not familiar with Global Saki, I highly recommend it. I think you should go and check out the website, and and you'll find that there's tons of useful information. Tell me what's new at Global Saki. I hear you have an interesting event coming up. Please share some some information yeah. with us. So so last year was focused on. Uh, you know, we met every month. It was very hard to organize that, but uh, the goal was on the cross-functional enablements for international efforts. This year, the focus is on uh, deepening the relationships between client side and LSP side. Um, and um, and so we have four quarterly events. Each of them is on a different uh, theme. So the first one coming up in March on March third uh, is um, is the the focus is on people, so it's the human factor. Then Q two in June we have um, process focus uh, again the psych- the circular uh, localization focus uh, uh, cycles uh, Q3 is on technology AI enablements and Q4 is on geofit and uh, we already started um, uh, onboarding and curating the, the speakers and we have some you know we still you know, folks wanna wanna pitch their um, 
paper uh, suggestions, proposals. Uh, we still welcome some uh, some new speakers, but we are starting to to build that quickly. And then, in addition to those four quarterly virtual events, uh, we're going to have a lot of in-person uh, local experiences. So more focus on experiences and relationship building. So I've introduced like um, I call it uh, lock walks. So um, and the first one I'm leading in on February 11 here in San Francisco. Uh, we'll have more. Um, throughout the year in different geolocations. It's going to be every. It's going to be on Fridays. It's a lunchtime thing. It's a. It's a two to two and a half hours where we meet um, in person. Um, uh, in February, I'm taking a group to Fort Funston. It's a nature beach walk. It's amazing. Um, with picnic, I'm bringing a Mediterranean spread. My my husband makes the most amazing hummus, so that will be part of the experience with wine and everything. And it's really just you know breaking bread together, coming together uh, in in a world where. You know, most people work remotely and, and isolated in front of a screen all day. I think everyone um, just wants to go outside to breathe fresh air, meet like-minded industry people, just just meet and, and get to know new new people um, and have interesting, fascinating conversations and and, and uh, share an experience together. So um, we will start rolling that out to other locations with, um, you know, different like urban walks and, um, you know, skating and uh, fire like real fireside what has the response been to uh, your initiative uh, is it making a dent today to educate the the, the the executives who haven't even heard of localization what has been their feedback yeah um, we've we've received um, amazing feedback uh, and really it's it's a lot of it is really the, the type of audiences uh, that are part of, we call it the parliament members basically uh, the parliament members are the folks who subscribe to the annual program but then we also have some people just uh, sign up to a specific event the type of people attending you know uh, most the vast majority of them are either sea level or higher uh, management uh, so people with influence um, people who are eager to to know and to create ties for collaborations and um, and they are you know they are the buyers they are the influencers right they are the th- the, the, the thought leaders within the company uh, who make the decisions and so hearing from them you know uh, that a they've had a good time which is really number one priority <laughs> we just want people to <laughs> life is hard we just want people to come together and, and have a good time um, learn from each other because everyone you know it's a very savvy audience um, everyone knows something right and together we have complementing skill sets and the goal is really to learn from each other and um, you know also within the sessions we bring uh, speakers who come from different functional uh, positions right um, so representing the different functional orientation uh, around that topic and also representing uh, different size of companies startups scale-ups multinationals and representing different geolocations right so so that's always a very interesting uh, perspective um for rounded views um yeah the, f- the feedback has been amazing uh really um the we, we've been able to you know i think people have you know zoom fatigue but we've been able to even though these are zoom events um they're not uh, established as a passive uh you know webinar cons- content consumption it's rather a live zoom meeting uh, most of the people have their cameras open and um it's uh you know we see each other we there are a lot of interaction activities throughout the event um there's um, live concerts you know we had uh, musicians coming from rio and doing a live concert um and others uh, we had masha in the december event do a live concert so um a lot of experiences even though it's virtual right so and they've, they've been very engaging 
and interactive. So, so yes, a lot of the feedback was around that, around um, learning from each other, building uh, meaningful relationships that help them then offline with with their efforts, um, but really mainly just having a good time. As we reach the end of this conversation, Talia, can you share your contact detail for people interested in Global Salki or to connect with you in general? Yes. So, so I, I run it, my, um, you know, myself and John, John Hayato, uh, who is my partner. Um, maybe I will just send you, if you go to globalsakigrowth.com, uh, I will send you the link and, um, you know, and then you can maybe share that in the podcast because there is the 2022 program link within that. And then there's another link uh, to the lock walks if people want to just sign up to a lock walk uh, in their uh, geolocation. Absolutely. Well, uh, we'll put the link and the information in the description of this podcast. And, and I'm sure people would love to learn more about Global Saki and, and, and to network. I must say, I really enjoyed speaking with you, Talia, and it was a fun conversation. Uh, I'm glad you share your thoughts and experiences with the listeners of this podcast. Uh, I do hope that people on both sides of the localization fence, buyer side and, and supplier side, uh, which is something that Global Saki is catering to, I hope they found at least one thing that they could improve in their practice. And if that happened, we have hit our goal. With that, I want to thank you and look forward to having you on uh, the Translation Company Talk podcast again. Thank you so much, Sultan. I'm honored uh, to be your guest. And um, and also uh, for the audience, uh, anyone who wants to uh, follow up with any questions or just reach out uh, for proposal papers or anything, uh, you can reach me on LinkedIn and I'll share that with you as well. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so much. As you heard from Talia, localization is slowly moving from that obscure part of our business into spotlight. Many organizations recognize the need for localization on its own, but we still are seen as a support function facilitating communication to foreign markets. I think we will continue to be seen like that. And just like people don't think about the designer of product until it does not work, end users of localization won't think much about it until there is a problem. As a service provider, our localization teams deliver tremendous value to organizations making global trade, international business operations, and much more possible through language and cultural expertise. Localization will continue to play an important role in the global economy, and this function will become more important with, pro- with proliferation of global trade. That was our show for today. It was an interesting conversation and I'm sure we will cover this topic in great detail in future episodes. If there is a specific topic or subject you need to cover in this podcast, please reach out and every effort will be made to find the right expert. Don't forget to subscribe to the Translation Company Talk podcast on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify or your platform of choice and give this episode a thumbs up or five star to boost its rating. Until next time. Thank you for listening. Make sure to subscribe and stay tuned for our next episode.